Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to live grief support, podcast stickers, giveaways, and so much more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm interviewing Dr. Sharon Prentice, who's telling the story of her shared death experience and her book inspired by that spiritual event called Becoming Starlight. Also on the show today, I'm talking about the weird, unexplainable, illogical stuff that happens to us in the aftermath of loss and how to share it with others. I'm Shelby Forsythia an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for listening today. I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who joined me this past Monday for our monthly hour-long Google Hangout. We talked about how our identities change after loss, how grief has a tendency to make us more impulsive people, how we have permission to grieve conditions, diagnoses, and different abilities that we were born with, and navigating milestones. If an hour of live questions and answers with me and fellow listeners of this podcast sounds right up your alley, always pledge at any level on my Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Shelby and you'll instantly unlock the link to join us next month. Our next Google Hangout is scheduled for Monday, March 25th at 8 o'clock p.m. And of course, you can always find a link to my Patreon page in the show notes. This week, Grief Growers, my guest, Dr. Sharon Prentice, is joining us to tell her story of a remarkable shared death experience. It's kind of like, and most of you might be familiar with the concept of a near-death experience, where you might drop into experiencing your own death for a little bit and then come back, uh, but it's uh, it's different. There's one glaring exception with a shared death experience in that you are witnessing death alongside someone else, but you yourself do not actually die. Um, so Sharon's husband died, but she got to go along for at least part of the ride. We talk a lot about spirituality and intuition on this podcast, and those topics are kind of skirted or danced around in quote unquote polite society. It's not often at work, home or school that we get to have these honest, in-depth conversations about the things we feel and believe to be true the experiences we have that change our beliefs or inform our decisions or frankly, change our lives. For the top of the show today, I want to offer you some tips for sharing your story of spirituality and intuition, as well as some tips for listening to the stories of others. I had very few intuitive experiences growing up. The two I can most vividly recall are one, uh, when I was five and I astral projected or floated outside of my body down the staircase in my childhood home. I told my mom that I flew, I flew, 
And of course, she didn't believe me. But to this day, it's something I feel to be very, very real about myself and my life. Uh, And then the other experience happened when I was 16 and visited Chicago for the very first time. And I had this head to toes flooding of knowing of, oh my God, I'm going to live here. This is my home. This feels like home. And where my family probably thought I was just excited about being in a big city for the first time, I knew, I knew, I knew, I get chills saying it with everything in my body, that I belonged in the city of Chicago, that it was home to me. And then, of course, later I moved and I live in Chicago today. So I didn't have a lot of intuitive experiences growing up, but after my mom died, I was flooded, like inundated with intuitive experiences. And at first I didn't really know what to call them. There was everything from my girlfriend at the time having visitation visions of my mom and delivering messages to me. There were repeating numbers that were palindromes, things like 424-818-373 that I later learned are numerical stand-ins for MOM, mom, another palindrome. There were songs that would come on at the right moment or when I walked into a shop, uh, words that would pop into my brain and dreams that I would have that I would classify now as being both highly spiritual and highly intuitive. In these dreams, I felt my mom holding me, embracing me, and yeah, even during a lot of the nightmares, dying again. And during most of these moments of intuition or spirituality, I felt like I was being communicated to or transported to a place where words weren't important and I could communicate with my mom through energy. And doing the show for as long as I have and and having these interviews and then talking to all of you off the mic as well, I believe that all of us have some intuition in us. We've had guests here on the show talk about visions of butterflies, angels, premonitions, dreams. The lines between the real world and the other side or the dream world or the realm of the spiritual, whatever you'd like to call it, these lines get blurred when we grieve. And sometimes we're looking for messages and sometimes we're not. But unexplainable, crazy, illogical things happen. And the only thing that I know to call them is intuition or having spiritual experiences. What's tricky is that in our concrete world of logic and science and proof, it's often really hard to share these stories with other people without coming off as crazy or distracted or um, kind of way too focused on, on the death or grief. So if you've had a visitation dream or you're seeing numbers that won't go away or even experience something as vivid as what we're going to talk about later, a near death or a shared death experience, there's often this invisible pressure to keep the whole thing to yourself or worse, an unspoken belief that you might be going crazy. So if you've experienced intuitive moments in your grief, I want to share with you some tips for sharing your story with other people. The first thing is always ask if you can share it. I know that for most of our lives, we have conversations kind of willy nilly without regard to their content, things like what's for dinner? Did you see that show on Netflix? When is this report due to the boss? Um, But things of an intuitive nature kind of warrant and deserve a more receptive audience. So something as simple as I had a really wild dream last night, do you want to hear about it? Or something weird has been happening every time I look at the clock, do you want to know about it? Or I know this stuff isn't for everyone, do you, but do you believe in angels, ghosts, horoscopes, insert intuitive thing here? 
And if the person you're talking to says yes, you've got the green light to share your story. If you get an uninterested look or even a distracted look or even a no, a flat out no, it might be best to find another person or outlet for your intuitive experience. Second thing to remember is that even if they say yes to hearing your story, the person that you're talking to might not get it. So just like grief, intuitive experiences are very, very personal, where one person might see angels or visions with their eyes. Another person may only feel things in their body, like a tap on the shoulder or brush across their legs. Some people might see numbers, others hear songs. And even if someone is open to hearing you tell your story, it doesn't mean they know exactly what you're thinking and feeling about it. They might be able to relate on some level, but they might not invest in your intuition as much as you would like them to. I know for me in my world, this comes out like me getting really excited about finding pennies on the ground, uh, when most of my friends think it's just really interesting or cool. And so their excitement level is not quite matched with mine. And that's okay. Um, So people can appreciate intuition and messages, but they might not get as jazzed up about it or psyched up about it as you. Last thing to know when sharing your story with somebody else is that you are not alone and you are not crazy. Like know these two things for sure. So even if you can't share your story with someone in person, there are tons of groups online and even books like Dr. Sharon Prentice's, which we'll talk about later, to read about intuition and otherworldly, spiritual, unexplainable stuff that happens in the aftermath of death and loss. For as much as your friends or family or community might make you feel like the odd man out, know that there are more people who have had intuitive experiences than have not. And a lot of times people who say they haven't had them have, and they might just be too afraid to admit it or not ready to talk about it yet. So have faith that there are other people out in the world receiving messages and having intuitive experiences just like you are. Okay, before we jump into the interview today, I want to share with you really quickly uh, some tips for those of you who are listening to people like us share intuitive stories. Just a few things. Uh, First is to be what the grief recovery method calls a big heart with ears. That means no judgment, analysis, criticism, or fixing. And this also means letting people have their own experience. And while you might not relate, everyone's story is very meaningful and personal to them. So let them have it and let them share it with you. Let them kind of invite you into that. Second thing, really important, and this is the case for grief stories in general as well, is let them tell their story all the way through. This means not interrupting, not asking questions, not adding your own perspective or input, uh, and let the person who's sharing get all the way through it. Unless they ask for your interpretation or advice, they're probably honestly not looking for it. So you can say yes or yeah or wow or oh or, or nod. You can be responsive, but let the story continue to unfold. And also, if they start to cry, let them be the one to get the tissues. A physical touch like handing someone a tissue or even putting a hand on their shoulder can interrupt the flow of information and emotions that are coming through. And last thing to know if you're listening to someone share an intuitive experience is that unless the person sharing with you is planning known harm to themselves or others, like taking their own life to join a loved one on the other side doing harmful rituals to communicate with the land of the dead, suddenly leaving homework or school to pursue trip-inducing drugs or substances, keep their experience confidential. Let it just stay with you. They trusted you with their intuitive experience and message, and it's your job as the listener and kind of a container to keep holding that space sacred for them. 
Whether the spiritual or unexplainable experience of intuition may seem bizarre to you, it's very, very rarely harmful. So kind of maintain that good friend status and treat their experience like you would any other trusted information that's been shared between you. Intuitive messages and feelings and experiences are pretty cool things, grief growers. While I can't imagine to try to tell you where they come from or why they visit us in the aftermath of loss, I do know that they are a natural and normal part of grief. Just because they don't look like our everyday experience doesn't mean that they're crazy or pathological or dangerous. Oftentimes, these unexplainable moments of seeing signs or hearing messages or feeling our loved ones are our biggest sources of comfort or peace or feeling loved in the aftermath of loss that has really kind of thrown us for a loop. If you would like to share your own story of intuition or kind of like a synchronicitous moment, join me and the listeners of this podcast in my private Facebook group, The Grief Growers Garden. I would love to witness your story of hearing from a loved one. You can always find a link to The Grief Growers Garden in the show notes. Next up, my conversation with Dr. Sharon Prentice, who had what she's calling a shared death experience. But first, a break. One of the most helpful things I've found in my lost grief growers is a witness to my journey. Beyond feeling that I'm not alone, although that's extremely helpful in the aftermath of loss, I feel like by sharing my story with someone else, I have a sounding board, a guide, and someone who's just a little bit farther ahead on the road than I am. There is camaraderie and small, growing strength and confidence in finding a grief coach who can companion you, walk alongside you, and you're coming back. I want to be the person to hold this space for you on a one-on-one level. If you're looking for more focused attention on your heart, whether you're coping with death, divorce, diagnosis, or something else, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching to receive more information about the types of grief coaching I offer and to fill out an interest form. That's shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. I'm here to be your companion, toolbox, and shoulder in grief. You can also find a link in the show notes. Dr. Sharon Prentice is the author of Becoming Starlight, a shared death journey from darkness to light. Soon after completing her graduate studies in psychology, Dr. Prentice longed to discover the whys about her own intimate experience with death in the form of a shared death experience, and that of others who had experienced something weird, unbelievable, or odd at the time of death of a loved one. Dr. Prentice is in private practice as a licensed clinical pastoral counselor, advanced certification. She is also a board-certified spiritual counselor and holds board certification in cognitive behavioral therapy, group therapy, integrated marriage and family therapy, and crisis and abuse therapy. She is also a board-certified temperament counselor. Dr. Prentice is a professional member of the American Counselors Association, a professional clinical member of the National Christian Counselors Association, clinical member of the American Mental Health Counselors Association, and a presidential member of the American Association of Christian Counselors. She is also a commissioned minister of pastoral care. I'm so excited that you're here with me uh, for the podcast coming back because we've had a lot of stories about intuition on the show. and what happens in these moments before and even after 
death of loved ones. So if you could please, I'm excited to share with our listeners exactly what it is that you do and study. So if you could please share your lost story with us. Okay, uh, lost story. Um, it's kind of a biggie. It, go, it goes back a ways. I lost both my daughter and my husband. Um, and when I lost my daughter, I kind of lost myself. And then years later, when I lost my husband, that's when I had the experience um, that I now know is called a shared death experience. Those are two supremely big losses um, to have the death of a child and then the death of a spouse as well. Um, I kind of want to dive deeper into both of them in terms of like the circumstances surrounding and then what eventually happened to lead into the shared death experience. Okay. Um, I had a very, very rough pregnancy. I got sick almost immediately after I was pregnant and it, it was six and a half months. Uh, she came early, but it was six and a half months of, of just pure, pure, pure sickness in and out of the hospital constantly in and out of premature labor constantly. Um, it, it just wasn't a very fun time at all. And I was terrified and just the, the, you can imagine what it's like when, when you try everything that you possibly can to hold on to this life inside of you, but you know that every single second that passes, you could lose her. So I ended up, you know, counting days and, and weeks and months just trying to get to the point where I knew that she would survive uh, if I happened to go into labor early, which I did. Um, I was just a little over six months when I went into labor and she only lived for maybe 15 minutes and she died in my arms. And when that happened, something was born in me that I honestly did not know even existed. It was a rage and a despair that was so overpowering to me that I lost myself. Um, and everything that I ever believed in. You know, I started bargaining with God uh, when the premature labor started. I made every bargain in the world. You know how people do that when they think, you know, if I, if I say I'll do this or do that and I'll be good and I won't swear and I won't, you know, I'll devote my life to taking care of everyone in the world. If you'll just do this for me, just let her live. And that bargaining got more and more and more intense, almost to the point of, of panic. Uh, because I knew what was happening. And then at the moment of her death, I realized that this being, if that's the word you want to use, that I had always believed in, this God entity that I had been told about from the time I was a little kid, if he existed, he was evil and mean and just horrible, and I was going to spend the rest of my life uh, beating him at his own game. So I set up I set up this revenge plan, this existential plan, you know, where I was going to beat death and beat God at their own game. So that way, if I could control everything in my life, nothing bad would ever happen to me again. Uh, so the events surrounding her death changed me. It altered my life from someone who was really joyful and happy with you know, the way life had been to someone who hated anything that was good and kind and don't even mention God to me or an all loving being out there that, you know, watches over us and takes care of us because that, that part of me died. Uh, and then a few years later, my husband started getting very sick 
and no one knew what was wrong with him. Make a long story short, it ended up being that he had pancreatic cancer. He was in the military, and he was uh, uh, electronic warfare, and he actually designed a lot of the warfare that's on our battleships. And so he would be closeted in a very small room, and his body was bombarded with all kinds of things that the human body is never supposed to be bombarded with. And it just ate right through him, pancreatic cancer. And it was at the moment of his death that I was granted this, what I now know is called a shared death experience. Um, It was, you want to know what what I believe happened, why I was given that experience, or or you want to, would you like to talk about something else for a little bit? Well, let's see. I think this is, um, we're teasing a lot of this at the beginning, which is super exciting. Um, And you kind of gave us a sniff of the person that you were before your daughter's death. And I'm always curious, especially because there's such a 180 with your relationship with God here. Can you kind of, um, we'll jump really far back into the past really quickly and talk about like how you were raised and what you believed about God before that moment. Uh, and then we can go forward into the shared death experience and your, uh, belief of what that was or what you stepped into in that moment. Sure. Um, raised Southern Baptist or Methodist, you know, it depends on where we were living. My dad was in the Air Force, and so we moved uh, all over the country, and we lived overseas, and it was just a constant, constant flow of all of these energies coming in at us and different beliefs and different, you know, because you meet so many different people in the different places that you live. But I was always presented with this picture, okay? As children, I believe we need these pictures. Adults give to us, uh, you know, this is what heaven looks like, and this is who and what God is, and this is what God looks like. And so in my mind, I had this this picture of this being, this man, looked a lot like Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Remember that movie? (laughs) Yes, I do. Yeah. And so it was this this all-powerful guy that lived outside of you somewhere, you know, up above the clouds. And he was just sitting there watching everything that everybody did. And if you did anything wrong, he was waiting to throw lightning bolts at you. So you had to be a good little girl. And if you were good, then nothing bad would happen in your life. God was this outside entity that was just there. Um, And that is, that was my version of who God was. So when I was going through this pregnancy, uh, and all of these things started happening to me when I would pray or when I would bargain or I would beg or I would demand or whatever it was that I was feeling at that moment, in that moment, all of that was directed at this childhood picture of this guy that was outside of me. And when he did not respond, and I'm using a generalized he because that's what I had always believed. And when he did not respond the way I wanted him to respond, and when he took my daughter, which is exactly the way I felt he did this to me, that I just, that system of belief that I had had since I was a child just disintegrated. It was just gone. And at the time, I was telling myself, he doesn't exist. He doesn't exist. But at the same time, I was saying, if he does exist, I'm going to get him. I'm going to beat it Mm -hmm. in his own game. 
I am going to make fun of anyone who even says that there is a good and loving entity, God watching over all of us. Anything that had to do with faith, anything that had to do with God or heaven, you didn't want to be around me. You didn't want to say it because I became an angry, angry, full of rage woman who blamed this entity for taking the life of a little tiny baby. And that to me was pure evil. So God was this outside entity that was evil that I went around saying did not exist. And if he did exist, I was going to beat him on his own game. So that was, it was, it was this total disillusionment, you know, of everything that I thought God was that I had been taught. That's what God was. And that lasted for a very, very long time um, until that very moment when I realized that I didn't want anything to do, nothing to do with that type of a being if he even existed. So when my husband got sick, I got even worse. I played that game, this revenge, battle, war, whatever word you would like to use, where I became the most controlling person you ever would ever want to be around. Uh, I figured if I controlled every single solitary thing, and that meant my husband, that meant the hospital, that meant the doctors, that meant anything that was happening in my life, I had to control it and control it in any way that I could, whether that was being manipulative or lying or whatever I had to do to beat this entity that I said I didn't believe in. But I think subconsciously, I really wanted to think that it, it you know, that was really real so that it was something that I could point my hatred at, mm-hmm. um, you know? So when my husband we finally found out what was wrong with him. And of course, the, the sickness, pancreatic cancer is what the final diagnosis was. And that is a brutal, brutal disease. And so I actually moved into the hospital with him. That was during a time when the hospitals didn't kick you out. You know, you still got to stay in the hospital. And we were up on the cancer ward and there were six families that surrounded us. And we all became very, very close knit. Um, you know, we watched out for each other constantly and one by one, everyone lost their battle. And every single time something of that would happen, I would get more angry and more bitter and more full of rage and more and more and more controlling. And that, all of that comes from what happened with my daughter. I struggled with this for so many years, there was an eight-year period between when she died and when my husband died. And the last day that we were in the hospital, the day he died, we'd been in that hospital for six months. And it was six months of the most intense pain and fear and anxiety and anguish and every word that you could you know, possibly think of. And that morning, the tumors had broken up in his body and traveled to his brain. And the oncologist told me that he could not see, he could not hear, he could not move, he could do nothing. So honestly, for the first time in six months, I was I was able to touch him. I couldn't touch him before that because every nerve fiber in his body was just on fire. And if I if I just even touched him with the finger, 
Uh, he would practically scream out in pain because it hurt him so much. So I had to keep my distance. Everyone had to keep their distance. The only one allowed to touch him was the oncologist, and it caused him so much pain that they'd have to give him morphine afterwards. So on that particular day when the doctor told me that he couldn't feel anything, um, I actually crawled up into the bed with him and got behind him and just held him in my arms all day long. Well, that night, um, the oncologist who was sitting there with us, he's a, he became a very, very good friend of ours. And he told me he needed to check Steve's vitals. So would I please, you know, get up off the bed? And that was when I realized that I hadn't had anything to drink or hadn't gone into the bathroom or anything, which I did. I got up off the bed. And as soon as I opened the bathroom door and walked in, I heard my oncologist yell out something that I won't say now because I know this is going to be broadcast um, and you're, you wouldn't appreciate his language, but you can imagine. Because what had happened was Steve had actually rolled over something that was medically impossible for him to do. He had actually rolled over in the bed. And when I heard the oncologist scream out, I, of course, raced out of the bathroom, rounded the corner and almost fell, but came up to the side of the bed so that I was facing Steve nose to nose, forehead to forehead, because I kneeled down, you know, so that I could be right next to his face. And he opened his eyes, which was another total impossibility. So for the first time in all those months, I thought I won, you know, I won. I beat God, I beat death. I won this one, you know, so to hell with you. I won this. Now you're going to leave me alone. And I thought, this is my reprieve. I had waited for this and waited for a sign, you know, from Steve that he was going to be okay. And so as I was kneeling, he opened his eyes and he looked right at me and I knew he could see me. You know, when someone's asleep, sometimes their eyes will be open and, and but you can tell, you know, that they're asleep. Mm -hmm. He was looking at me and his eyes were so bright and he could see me and I knew it. And so I, I looked right at him. And I was so close to him that, that it was, you know, a little unfocused. You know how you can get so close to something that your eyes kind of will even cross a little bit? because oh, sure. so Yeah. Well, that's the way I was with him. And instead of saying something so profoundly amazing, I just looked at him and said, what are you staring at? Can you even imagine that? <laughs> I, I, you know, you wait, you wait for this thing, this, this, marvelous moment where you know he's going to live. You won the game. And then you say something like, you know, what are you staring at? I, but, you know, it, it just flew out of my mouth. And he looked at me, and for the third time, he did something that was totally medically impossible. And he said, I just want to remember. And when he said that, I gasped. You know how when, when something is so surprising. You just go, ah, oh, you know, you take in that deep breath. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I did. And when I did that, he breathed out. And I remember closing my eyes because I could feel the warmth, you know, of his breath. And I thought, oh, this is just, this is amazing. I, I didn't thank God. I didn't do anything because I had done this. You know, I was stronger than anything out there. And then I opened my eyes. And I looked into his and I saw that they had gone dark and I knew that he was gone. And at that moment, Shelby, I lost me. 
because I realized that I hadn't won anything, that I had lost and I fell to the ground. I was still on my knees, but you know, my body just sort of slumped, you know, and there was absolutely nothing left of me. You know, we all walk around and we live within what I call the egoic mind, okay? The, our ego tells us who we are and what we are and how we're going to live and how we're going to dress and who we're going to be. And, and that's the world that we live in. And that is the very thing that I lost at that moment. It was a complete, a complete and absolute letting go of everything that I was. There, there was really virtually nothing left of me because I had lost everything. I lost my daughter. I lost my husband. There was nothing. I was totally emptied out. And at that moment, at that very same moment, shall I tell you what I think happened? My, my theory. Oh, I'm so excited about this. This is what I think happened. People have asked me for years, why you, you know, and in the beginning, I didn't have an answer to that, and, and I have sought for that answer, and I, I have talked to priests and rabbis and, and Buddhists and monks and, and people from Hinduism, and I have talked to so many people trying to find the answer. And the funny thing was, the more I tried to find that answer, the more it evaded me, you know, because the more mysterious something is, the more we think we're going to be able to understand it, so the more we look for it. Um, and that's what I did. But at the moment of his death, like I said, I, I breathed in his breath and then I realized he was gone. And when I realized he was gone, I lost me, every bit of me. And at that moment, here's my theory. At that moment, I believe that that's when the separation that I had set up between me and what I'm going to call true God, okay? Because this is, this is my truth, okay? It may not be someone else's, but it's mine. The separation that I had set up myself between me and what was real was gone. And that God was waiting for that. And when that happened, he said, her, right now, she's mine. Go get her, okay? She's mine. I'm, I'm going to fix this. That's the first thing that I think happened. Because at that moment... Here's where the shared death experience comes in. Shared death experience, if, if you don't know, and for your listeners who don't know, it is exactly the same thing as a near-death experience, except for one glaring exception. The person having the experience is not sick. They are not dying, nor have they died. They are bystanders that are invited along to witness what I call to peek into foreverness. It is to witness the aftermath of, of physical death to be taken taken along for the ride, you know, and to see what's going on. And so at that moment of his death, just like with the shared death experience, people have said, the ceiling in the room I was in just started to melt away. It just turned to mist, as did the floor. I somehow stood up, and I have said I did not do this of my own volition. I had no power to do this, but I found myself standing. And I was standing on a floor that I knew was there, but it wasn't there. And the walls just started to change the whole shape of the room. The room just started to go into nothingness. 
And that was when I noticed the stars. That's why the book is called Becoming Starlight, because the stars came and got me. It seemed like there were a billion of them, and I could see each one of them separately and distinct. And yet, it was one massive light, okay? I don't know whether to call it a light or a star, and I never did. All I know is it was this started out as just nothing but billions and billions and billions of stars coming to get me. And I went freely. And the reason I went freely was because there was a presence, okay, within that starlight. And it felt like home. It was, I have described it as a long ago forgotten memory because I had been there before and I knew it. I knew that it was my place in the universe. And I just gave myself over to it because, as I said before, there was absolutely nothing left of me. And this presence, I could feel just imagine yourself going through rage and hatred and just bitterness and and despair like you have cannot ever imagine and all of those horrible words. But then at the same time, feeling joyful and peace and calm and a love that is so, so overpowering that you just, you don't run to it. You just sort of put your arms down and close your eyes and just say, I'm coming. Imagine going through all of those emotions all at the same time. That's what it felt like. That's what that presence felt like to me, that I went through every single emotion that a human being could have to arrive at this place that was beyond peace and beyond joy and beyond love. Love doesn't even begin to describe the word for what this was. And when I went into that, I saw Steve. He was there. He was standing right in front of me. He was well. He was, once again, this has been very difficult to explain because I do not believe that we as humans have the language that we need to describe these things. I don't think a word has ever been invented um, because maybe a word isn't supposed to have been invented to describe this while we are, you know, in human form. I know that sounds strange, but I honestly believe that. There are some things we're just not supposed to be privy to. And I think that may have been what was happening with me while I was trying to explain to myself and to you know where I was and what was happening and to explain the look on his face he was he was beyond joyful beyond peaceful beyond calm beyond well i have told people he just was and he was standing right in front of me with this smile on his face that it wasn't hey how you doing oh i'm so glad you it wasn't one of them and what the feeling that i got from that was Everything's exactly the way it's supposed to be. I'm supposed to be here. You're supposed to be here with me. This is the way it's supposed to be. And you know, the funny thing was I knew it. I knew it. And so all of the questions I had had from the time I was pregnant and then losing my daughter and with him and this battle I set up and all the questions about why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to them? Why did they have to die? You know, I didn't even, I didn't, it didn't matter anymore. It did not matter. I did not feel the need to ask the question because 
I knew that this was the way it was supposed to be. I just, it was this inner knowledge that this was okay. It was all okay. And eventually the time came when I knew he was going to be going away someplace else because the look on his face changed. It was still a smile, but in my mind or whatever I was at the time, I remember that I thought, this is okay. And that smile means goodbye, but it wasn't a goodbye as in, you know, the final whatever. It was more of a see you later. You know what I mean? It was a see you later. And I was being, I wasn't allowed to go. And I also knew that I wasn't going to be allowed to go where he was going because it wasn't for me. I had no purpose where he was going. My purpose was where I was at that moment. And so he eventually, I want to say that he walked away from where I was, but he didn't. He just sort of disappeared like the ceiling and the floor and everything else did. But it was this, I didn't, I didn't say goodbye. I didn't say anything because it was okay. It was supposed to be that way. And I was being held. I was cocooned in the most amazing, here I go with the adjectives again, to say it was magnificence and wondrous and awe-inspiring and all of those wonderful words, once again, to name it, negates it. But I was being held in the midst of that and all the anger and rage and hatred and just everything that I had been for so long was just gone. It was just taken from me because I understood exactly what was happening and that he was supposed to be there. And I knew he was going to be where our daughter was. I just knew it. And that made everything okay. I know that sounds kind of strange because people have said, you didn't ask when you were being held by this presence, you didn't ask, why did these things happen? And, you know, why, why does God take these, 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 but you know what? It didn't, that was the farthest thing from my mind because I knew that this was the way it was supposed to be. And to tell you the truth, I kind of laugh about it now. And people look at me with this strange look on their face when they say, why didn't you ask? And my answer has always been, well, you know, God really didn't feel the need to tell me why he runs the universe the way he does. <laughs> you know, it was like, okay, you know, this this is your deal, um, you know, and if that's the way it's supposed to be, that's the way it's supposed to be. I understand. I get it. And, you know, that's when I just, I just knew. And, of course, eventually, you know, I wasn't allowed to stay um, any longer. And no matter wh- how much I wanted to stay, I eventually found myself, I'm going to use the words coming back. I men- I eventually found myself deposited back in that room, you know, with the dingy, dingy floor and dingy ceiling and, and just dingy everything. And I tried so hard, Shelby, I tried so hard to find that one star, you know, that I could say, Hey, come back, you know, come back and get me. I want to go back again. But, but I, I couldn't, there was, there was no way. So after that happened, my entire 
life and that of the oncologist who was in the room. I mean, he was a little, he had seen some things before with some of his other patients and he was a little concerned about me. And, and, and apparently he, you know, looked in my eyes with a little light and took my blood pressure and all that because they didn't know what was happening. You know, to me, I guess I was so incredibly still and I wasn't moving and barely breathing. And so he was checking me too. But when I came back, he was there, my mom was there, my dad was there, and the nurses was there. And then, of course, my in-laws started coming in and all of that. And everyone got a little angry at me, and I don't blame them, because the first thing I said when I realized that, you know, I was back in the hospital room, I said, first thing out of my mouth was, that was so amazing. Wow. I thought my mother-in-law was just going to knock me down. Um, but they didn't understand you know, it was totally out of context, but I had to say something because I had never experienced anything like that before in my life. And I didn't know what it was. I knew it was the real, the most real thing that had ever, ever happened to me. And yet I didn't know what it was, you know? Um, and that kind of started me on a search. But my, when people ask me, why you? Number one is what I said just a few minutes ago, that I think what happened was when I had that complete letting go, okay, the complete letting go, and the ego just left me. There was, there was just nothing left. That I think that was when I was granted what centuries ago was termed divine gifts, okay? When God said, there she is, I'm going to go get her. I want, I, she's mine. Okay. I'm going to claim her as my own. I think that's number one. Does that explain the whole thing? No. Number two, I think it was Steve's love because he knew that if there was anything at all in this universe that he could do to save me, he was going to do it. Okay. So I think that's the second thing. And the third thing that I think is probably the most important of all is that at the moment when I fell to the ground, my oncologist and my parents said that this noise came out of me, just this guttural, just this guttural primal thing, okay, that I believe if you want to compare it to something, I would compare it to a sacred word, okay? No, it wasn't a word. It was a sound. And if this sound somehow hit this vibrational pattern that created the entire world, right? That this sacred word took me into what they called centering prayer. And when there is centering prayer, your focus then becomes one of oneness, okay, with God. It is an awakening. It is this enlightening you know, everybody says, and it's very cliche, that we're spiritual beings on a physical journey. And when you somehow enter that place, I think that's what happened to me. I think it was a threefold case of a divine gift. Um, and there's lots of different words for those. You know, there's flight of spirit and there's, you know, out of body and there's near death. You know, all these different types of things. But see, that's not enough. That's why I think the centering prayer had a lot to do with it too, because the focus has to be on entering what the mystics call that heart of hearts, you know, where, where God lives, that every single human being has that. 
in their heart, that one place where there are only two entities, and that's the word I'm going to use, allowed, one being God, he lives there, and the other being you, when you find your way into that part of you that is that that expression of him. You know, we all exist because we are a thought of God. That's the only reason we exist. You know, it was like, I'm going to call it the mind of God, which is really kind of a silly thing to say because God is everything, everywhere. There is nowhere that he is not. So to say that there's a, you know, a mind. Um, but once again, there's no other word I can use. Um, but it's like he said, okay, um, I have this girl in my mind and this is what I want her to show the world of me and zap, here's Shelby. And when we discover that, when we get back to that be still and know that is in just about every major religion in this world, there's something that talks about be still, whether you want to talk about your sacred chakras, getting into the crown chakra or kundalini or vibrational patterns or, or whatever, that higher place. So I think those three things together, I could be totally wrong. That's just my theory. When I look back at my life and the way things all happen, that is what I think happened to me and why I was granted this, because I will tell you this, Shelby, without that happening, there wouldn't be a me. There, there wouldn't be a me because, you know, all of that control and that despair and all of that anger and bitterness and hatred, and you come up with the word, I, I felt it, that would have eventually killed me. So I think this was a, a combination of uh, those three things that God finally said, all right, all right, all right, I give up. Come on. So I did win in that case, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of the story. Um, now, I have used that. Since then, most of my patient population is terminally ill people and their families. And the reason I do that, when people find out that's what they what I do, they normally say, oh, that's so great of you. Oh, that's so wonderful. And, and I can't take credit for that because I originally started it because I thought I want to get back. Okay. I want to get back to that place. What's the best way to do it since I couldn't do it? You had ulterior motives. Yes, I did. I couldn't do starlight. I couldn't find the meditation because I couldn't still my mind enough anymore because I had too many questions. So I thought, you know what? Why don't I be with people who are dying? Because then maybe I can hitchhike a ride back. You know, <laughs> maybe it'll happen again. Of course, it never did. And this turned into something totally different. Um, but in the beginning, it was a still a search um, for me, because you know you cannot live in that kind of an experience forever. I do not believe that our hearts and minds are set up uh, to live in that kind of magnificent love and expression of the love. I, I think it would drive us crazy. It would probably kill us if we tried to live in that daily. And eventually, the ego takes back over, and you figure, okay, I'm I'm going to get into this mystery and I'm going to solve it. But what happened with me was. The more I tried to solve it, the more I realized that I was thwarting my own efforts by the constant, 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 constant searching and asking and researching. And I didn't realize that I could get as close to that as possible if I just sat still, which is what I do now a lot. That's one of the things I teach a lot of my patients, whether they're the terminally ill families or 
you know, just the regular population of people who, who are not terminally ill, I try and teach them about finding that sacred word and, and centering themselves. Because I am one of those psychologists that believes that you cannot be totally healthy unless everything is in balance. And by everything, I mean the emotional, the physical, the psychological, and especially the spiritual. Because if the spiritual goes down, the entire system goes down. I want to share some um, some pictures that have come up as you've been speaking. Okay. And they're extreme. Like the, the thing I was uh, envisioning as you were talking about this eight-year period between the death of your daughter and the death of your husband, and then again, living for six months in the hospital and having everyone surrounding you losing their battles with cancer is like every single thing that happened was another. It wasn't like a stick or a log. It was like an armoire that we're dumping onto a fire. Like something is adding fuel to this, you know, the rage, the despair, the injustice, I'm going to get God back. And I, I picture you in this like existential arm wrestling match with God. That's it. Like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to slam you down to the table. I'm going to make you see you got that X, Y, Z. And I think this, this, rage and this, we get angry because something unjust has happened. I think that rage comes from a place of a a lack of justice being served uh, or things that are beyond our understanding or a combination of both. Um, And and anger and fear. fear. Oh my God, we're so afraid, especially... Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and so I, I just kept getting this visual of like things being added as fire and this thing is huge. And there's this huge, like wall of flames and stuff around you. And I mean, if somebody shouted at you, you still wouldn't be able to hear them because this thing is just so big. Uh, and so far for this universal power to come through, it's not even like somebody dumped water on it. It's like that, um, it's like that fire extinguisher foam. That's just like over everything. And then you're standing there and, uh, and then you're like, now I am still, you, you've said this very distinct phrase. I should have written it down, but I did not, um, of, I didn't even have to walk to get there. I just let my arms drop. And I was like it, I was just there. There was no, like you enter the space, no participation required. And that is like wicked cool. Um, so just a, a neat picture coming up with that. And then Something else that's kind of joining the picture too is this notion that so many people ask you why, and the, the question yeah. that's coming to my brain is like, why does it matter? Because there's there's such a quest it feels like to find logic and meaning and structure in grief and death and things yes. that happen to us after yes. we die. Um, but oftentimes, especially when you were talking about going with him on this experience, having a near death experience, the shared experience. The, the phrase that jumped into my mind was logic doesn't live there. Like it just doesn't, it's not where logic no. lives. Um, and so to try and use, even you and I both have been struggling for words during this conversation, even to try and use words to describe it, even if we knew multiple languages, that still wouldn't help um, because that lives, that lives in our brain. There's a phrase that the grief recovery method uses called intellectually true, but emotionally not helpful. And usually it's for phrases like, uh, they're in a better place or time heals all or just get busy. Oh, right. okay, so yeah. It's with the yeah. soothing phrases, but it can also be true for sometimes there just ain't words to explain this. <laughs> and I think that's so true with grief. It really is. And, you know, one of the reasons I have shared this story with every single terminally ill patient I have. And the reason I do that 
is to alleviate some of the fear because you know it's so funny too when you look at it, you ask or all the research is showing that the things that people are most afraid of number one is public speaking and number two is death why it's that order I don't know <laughs> um, I know isn't that funny isn't I'm like funny? God help us if we ever have to give a speech in heaven <laughs> yeah I know isn't it? I, it absolutely but it's one of the reasons I share this with all of them is because if I can help alleviate some of the fear because the biggest things that people say to me is what's going to happen to me? They don't mean, am I going to survive or am I going to die? What they mean is, am I just going to turn into nothingness? Am I just, poof, you know, is everything that I was and everything that I am, is it just gone? We cannot imagine ourselves as just being gone. And, you know, when you get that diagnosis, okay, the first thing you think of is what's what's going to happen to me? Where you know what what's going to happen? And you want to know what dies? The first thing that dies when you get that diagnosis, innocence. And you know what that innocence is? That innocence is never thinking about your mortality. We all walk around thinking nothing bad is going to happen to us, and nothing's going to happen to our families. That always happens to the other guy, right? Well, to the other guy, that's us. And so losing that innocence and for the first time having to face your own mortality is the most fearful thing that people experience when someone gives you a diagnosis that whether you expected it or not, actually hearing it, okay, hearing you may go to bed and have nightmares about it and not be able to sleep because you're thinking, oh my gosh, I may have this or I may have that. But until you hear someone say it to you, you don't believe it. And as soon as someone says it to you, there is still that, no, 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 no. But at the same time, that innocence falls away and you say, oh, I could die. And it becomes real. And that is, it is one of the most fearful moments just the most fearful moments in someone's life. You know, we all walk around and we align ourselves with what we think we know. Okay. And it's thoughts, it's logic. Like you said, it's all reason, it's logic, it's thinking. It's that's what we align ourselves with. And when we do that, we separate ourselves from our true mortality and we don't think about it. And we separate ourselves from each other. We separate ourselves from God. We separate ourselves from the fact that we are going to cause tremendous pain to everyone we love because we're going to die. And everyone we love is going to cause us tremendous pain because they're going to die. And nobody likes to think about that. So the fear factor involved in this is tremendous so that's why I share my experience with everybody because I know I can't take all the fear away and I and I don't ask anyone to believe every single thing that I'm saying because you know that's my truth but if I can break in just a little bit you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. to give people just that inkling that hey you know I'm not going to just disappear into you know the mist that that is nothing helping to alleviate that fear the slightest little bit bringing a little bit of hope and faith 
modern medicine is finally starting to understand that the emotional and psychological and especially the spiritual balance in someone's life that has been diagnosed with something that could cause their death, that is the key to survival. So that's what I try to do. I think this is really important because death is often really scary. And even if I've, okay, so I've heard one of the first books that I reached for after my mom died was actually something my cousin recommended to me, which is, uh, I believe it's Many Lives, Many Masters. And it was about this woman who was struggling with a host of issues and kind of at her wits end, she went to a hypnotist and, uh, and these conversations just all of a sudden fell into her showing up as people that she was in a past life. And so I started, as you kind of spoke of people align themselves with what they think they believe in. I have subscribed to the idea of past lives. Um, and that was something that kind of cracked open this idea coming from a mostly conservative Christian household to right. things like Eastern ideas of, you know, something being beyond the veil or, but you know what the biggest stark contract was is, oh, it's not hellfire and damnation. So I'm like, if anything that's not that is reassuring to me, oh, you know, <laughs> um, so which funny. is wonderful. So you say you bring people a fear that they're not going to turn into dust, but I'm like, here's anything that's not fire is wonderful. <laughs> You know, that's, that's funny that you, that you mentioned that because there is a chapter in a book called That Place, okay? And then a couple chapters after that, where people have said to me, they've asked me about, you know, judgment and all that other stuff. And I got to tell you, Shelby, there was not even an inkling, not even an inkling of any type of judgment whatsoever. And it, this act, I mean, this changed everything I ever believed about God and the way the universe works and about, I'm going to use the generic hymn, okay? It just makes it easier to talk about. Um, there was so much love. I hear people now talk about unconditional love, right? And it kind of makes me laugh a little bit because I'm, I never use that because it doesn't even come close. Even if you're a parent and you have children that you'd give your life for, there's always a condition, Okay, who they're going to be, what they're going to be, you know, how they're going to talk, what they're going to wear. We, we slap those labels on our babies the minute they're born. And that's the way they grow up. And if they do not conform to the family standards and the family norms, there's always a condition. Okay, there were no conditions. There was no judgment. It was just, oh, my Lord. I, you know, I now say I, t- I tell a lot of people that death is just birth backwards. You're just going home. Um, because that's exactly what it felt like. I, I knew I was home and hellfire and damnation. Of course, you know, you grow up with that when you're in a conservative Christian household. So that, that really uh, emanated with me when you said that. Um, but hellfire and damnation, you want to know where I think hell is. And this is, people get a little upset with me when they are literal. Um, you know, when they go literally, when it comes to scriptures of any kind, I think you make your own hell just like I did when I talked earlier about the separation that I created. Okay. I created the separation from what I discovered to be. And once again, I'm going to say my truth. I created that separation. I created my own hell. And I think we all create our own hell. And I cannot, I can never go back to thinking that there is this place 
where this all-encompassing, loving being would forever, you know, burn somebody, you know, in the fires of hell, and they're going to suffer forever and ever. It, it it doesn't ring true to me at all because I I don't know how God set up the universe. And you know, there's always people out there that'll say, "Well, what about Hitler? And what about Mussolini? And all of them?" And my answer has always been, "I don't debate this because, like I've said, God did not feel it necessary to tell me the way He's going to do things." Okay, I'm sure he has a plan and whatever it is, it's the good one and it's the right one. And, you know, I I was just kind of the bystander, you know what I'm saying? Um, And I just I cannot believe that there is that kind of a dominion somewhere anymore. I now know I now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God lives in me. I live in him. I am his thought. I always was. I think he was trying to get my attention for all of those years. And at that moment when I finally let go of my egoic mind, I think that was when he said, I got you. I got you now. You're not going to fight me anymore. And, And that is, you know that old, I know you've heard this. Know thyself. Okay. Sure. How many people? Know thyself. That's one of the things that I ask my patients, not my terminally ill patients, but the other people that come to me. I'll ask them, who are you? And of course, the first thing I get is I'm a lawyer, I'm a doctor, I'm an Indian chief, whatever, you know. And then I go back into the stuff that, you know, very cliche. No, that's not who you are. That's what you do. And I get stared at, you know. But then when I finally say to them, that is really an unanswerable riddle. It really is. Because we live within this ego identity from the time we're old enough to say mommy and daddy, okay? When they say you're a good little boy or you're a bad little girl or, you know, I don't like you wearing that or I don't want you playing with that kid or I don't like your hair the way it is or whatever. That ego identity is so strong in us that we can't answer the question, who am I? So it really is an unanswerable riddle until you have that moment. That all the great philosophers, you know, John of the Cross and and St. Teresa and, you know, some of the mystics, the Sufi mystics and the Christian mystics and, you know, the Hinduists, some of those people, they, they got it pretty right. When you get into this opening, whether you want to call it the crown chakra or whether you want to just call it, you know, awakening through centering prayer or contemplative prayer, whatever you want to call it. When you find your way into that spot and you realize just who you are in this universe, you realize that you are that thought of God and then the whole, everything, everything is changed in your life forevermore and you can't ever go back. Yeah. It's, I mean, once you see, you can't unsee. (laughs) I mean, once you experience, you can't unexperience. And that's the case with devastating loss. Once you know death exists in the world and can take people you love, you never... You never walk around with your rose-colored glasses on again. You always see through a lens of mortality after that point. Um, I want to kind of, um, I want to take things into, like I want to put some roots on the ground to when you walked out of this hospital after just having lost your husband mm-hmm. and simultaneously having just had this experience, what did your life look like after that? Because it sounds like, 
in a movie, this would be something that totally changes everything in 60 seconds or less with some kind of Anne Hathaway style makeover. <laughs> um, or literally every component of your life would change. Um, and then kind of how did you get to be doing the work you are now from having this experience and not uh, for, for lack of a non-religious reference, like hiding it under a bushel basket and taking it out into the world. Right. Like, where did that come from? You know, it's funny. I was actually in college at the time. Um, and right after when I left the hospital, uh, it was really funny. I was in the back seat of my parents' car. It was April and I rolled down the window and I'm just staring up at the stars and just crying and laughing. And I'm sure my parents, you know, my mom especially thought I lost my mind. They were so worried about me, but I was still trying to find my way in, you know, and this, this is, people say this is bizarre, but I knew so well where they were. You know what I did the next day while everybody was getting ready for those, you know, what do they, what do they call them? The viewings and all that stuff. I went bike riding. I did. I went bike riding. I told, I did. I told my parents and his parents, you go set everything up. And I got on my bike and I went to Shelby Forest that's in, in Memphis because we live very close to that. And I went bike riding because all I wanted to do was feel the wind. You know, I just wanted to feel the wind and I changed my major and I did psychology and I eventually got into medical school and I was in medical school for only about six months because I was going to be a psychiatrist. And I realized that psychiatry was the pill poppers, you know, and I didn't want to be the pill poppers. And all this time I'm talking to all of these people because, you know, Georgetown, the, the Jesuits are there and you can talk to them about all kinds of, of, of things. And I realized that no, 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 this is not, this is not where I need to be. So I left medical school and I started uh, graduate school um, in, in clinical psychology. And that still wasn't enough because I knew all this time, you know, I'd go to the hospitals and I'd haunt, really seriously, I'd haunt the hospitals. And when I did my internships, I, I did it with these people who were dying because I wanted to know what kind of experiences they were having and what they were saying and what they were thinking. And, you know, all of that to, to see if their, if their mindsets were the same as mine was. And I got so deeply into that. So that when I finally got my PhD, you know, in, in regular secular um, psychology, I said, nope, it still wasn't enough. I needed something else. So I started looking for spiritual places, which I found. So then I got board certified in spiritual counseling because I needed that component to help with the people that I knew I was going to be working with. Um, and it just kind of, it just kind of came to me, I knew a lot of, of uh, oncologists because I haunted their offices too. One of my worst nightmares was always right before Steve died. Was always in the room, and he would take his last breath, and then a doctor would come racing in, saying, "We got it, we got it, we have the cure." I had that nightmare for a very long time. Um, here, as a matter of fact, just a few years ago, uh, when they were talking about the cures they were coming up with, pancreatic cancer was one of the ones that was mentioned. And you know, it used to be an automatic death sentence, and now people live for seven, eight, nine, you know, eleven years with that particular type of cancer. And I remember when I first heard that, I just sobbed. You know, because that was always my worst nightmare. But at the same time, I was so thankful that so many people um, are going to start surviving this just got off a horrible, horrible disease. 
But I knew that that was what I was going to do. And I needed that spiritual factor because that's what is missing in modern medicine. The understanding that your spiritual nature must, 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 must be absolutely at the top of the, of the field, you know, when, when you're trying to balance out everything that's happening in your body. So that, and, and it just, people just came to me, my oncologist friends and my cardiologist friends and all of them would say, Hey, I've got this person, you know, who, who has this type of cancer, or, or I have this person whose husband or child or whatever, would you talk to them? Um, I say, sure, you know, so uh, a lot of them I even brought to my home and we would just sit and we would talk and that's how it started. It started very slowly and it just built and built and built. Um, and so pretty soon it became absolutely referral only because there's not a person in the world, no one that is not touched by death and grief, no one, um, you know, so it was just one of those I was, I, I honestly think that this was just where I was supposed to be. And even if I hadn't wanted to do it, I would have probably ended up doing it because that's where I'm supposed to be. Oh my gosh, absolutely. And thank you for taking that into uh, even like a little timeline for us. Well, it's, uh, it didn't happen overnight because, you know, you got to have the, you, you have to have the credentials just to even get in the door, you know? And I used to go talk to people before I had all the degrees, too, because my friends and and the other students, you know, the ones I was going that were in my classes, they knew um, what I had been through and they knew the story. So they would say to me, hey, I've got this friend who's going through whatever. Could you talk with them? So sure. So we go out. We go to we even went to movies. I went to movies with some of these people, you know, very selected movies about, you know, faith and hope and all of those types of things. And then we just have conversations like that, even when I was a student. So I could see my help, myself heading that way. I just didn't know exactly how I was going to get there. But along the way, you learn those things. And so I picked up, you know, the credentials I needed just to get in the door. I think that hits on such a good note. And actually, before we wrap up for the day, I would love to have you let people know where people can find uh, your book as well as get in touch with you if they'd like to uh, just say hello. Sure. Um, you can get the book on Amazon, of course, um, Barnes & Noble, your indie stores. Uh, you could also go to my website, uh, com, and you can. there's a little tab on there. Um, that takes you to all of the places uh, where you can get the book. You can also contact me on there. I'd love to see people, you know, sign up for the, the newsletter and the blog and the, you know, contact list because um, we're going to start sending out all kinds of stuff. When people get in touch with me, I answer. I don't let anybody else answer for me. So that's the website. I also have a, what they call my professional Facebook page. I have two, one's personal, for my, <laughs> you know what I mean? One's personal for my family. And the other one is open and there's like 35,000 people on there already. And that's kind of spooky to me because that means 35,000 people are listening to me. I'm like, ooh, no, 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 no. So, you know. <laughs> you can't think about the numbers too hard. You just I keep know. So just keep they, talking. They can go there um, and reach out to me too. And once again, I answer everything. It may take me a little time because I get a lot every day, but I will answer. I absolutely love that. I do that too. I've been so reluctant to hire anybody yeah. as like a assistant because I'm like, no, no, there's a 
there's a touch and a vocabulary and everything that comes yep. straight from me. And I can tell there's one that comes straight from you as well. There's an experience that happens. Well, you know, I, I read your, your page and I just so, I so connected with you on such a level when I saw the things that you had gone through and what you struggled with. And everyone in the world is going to struggle with that in one way or another. None of us are getting out of here alive. Um, and and to help someone through the grieving process so they don't get stuck in that dark place. I think that's what you're about um, with your podcast and the way you live your life. And I, I find that uh, very inspirational, Shelby. I want you to know that. Thank you so much. And I am so just delighted you've spent so much time with us on coming back today. Um, this is this is a treat, really, to be able to share this kind of experience on here. Um, Yes, I'm just so excited to have spent this time with you. Well, thank you. I am too. I've, I've been looking forward to talking to you, especially, like I said, since I learned a little bit about you. I, I admire you greatly for, for what you do. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much to Dr. Sharon Prentice, who joined us today to share her shared death experience and talk about intuition, God, and reassuring the fears of the dying. Dr. Sharon came back by studying the spiritual nature of her experience and by sharing her story with others. You can find Dr. Sharon's website where you can learn more about her book, Becoming Starlight, in the show notes. For grief support beyond this podcast, go to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia, where you can pledge to support for as little as $1 per month and receive instant access to a monthly grief support hangout with me. The next hangout is Monday, March 25th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Thank you this week to Claude, who is a new supporter on Patreon. You can also apply for private grief coaching with me at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby for Scythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby for Scythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.